But still, with that being said, we want to be faithful to God's Word, but I will be brief with my words as we kind of finish up this section of 1 Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Um, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3, which will not be on the screen of 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you need a Bible, just grab one from the seat back in front of you. If you grab one of the black um, hardback Bibles, we'll be on page uh, 1014. 1014. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The reason why I'm reading verse 3 all the way through verse 12, which our text is verse 10 through 12, is because in the Greek language, this is all one sentence, right? And so as we get to it, it's just a compound sentence. My, my grammar teacher would not have been happy with this sentence. It just keeps going. But we want to see the idea as we get to the end, Peter's going to make an emphasis in our text, verses 10 through 12, and I want to make sure that we get the full weight of the sentence as we get to that emphasis towards the end. And so 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now to our text this afternoon, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, everything he just said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I've titled tonight's message simply, Knowing the Grace of Christ. Let me ask you this question. When you begin to think about knowing Christ, and you begin to think about what does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? How might you answer that question? For yourself personally, think about it. What, if someone says, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the essential essence of Christianity? What is it? And what does it mean to you? How might you answer that question? Some accurate answers that might come to mind that we might think of is that we begin to describe Christianity based off our beliefs. We begin to describe Christianity based off what Scripture says about Christ, what it says about us as sinful human beings and how we are saved and, and all of those things. This is what we call theology or the doctrines of Christianity. We might describe that God created everything good, but sin came into the world and therefore everything is broken, but God is holy and He can't ignore our sinfulness, so therefore His holiness and our sinfulness, He has no choice but to place us under His judgment and His righteous judgment and wrath because of our sinfulness and His holiness, yet out of His love for us, desired not to leave us there 
So he found a way for us to be redeemed. And the way was what Zamir said earlier, that Christ, being God, humbled himself, emptied himself of his glory, not his deity, but the glory of in heaven took on the form of flesh, died for our sins, meaning that he who knew no sin took on the wrath that we deserve in our sin. He took that on so that he took that judgment, so he took our sin so that through his death and resurrection, he could give us his righteousness. Therefore, we are able to no longer be under God's judgment because judgment has been paid in the person of Jesus. Therefore, he's able to bestow his holiness and his righteousness on us so that we may be redeemed back into relationship with God. Now that is praise God for those truths. Those are accurate, but all of those things point us to the very end. That all of that is so that we can come back into relationship with Jesus. I hope at the core of everything that as we describe our Christianity, we describe what it means for us to be a Christian, at the core of it would, would be the fact that we know the person of Jesus. That, that we know Christ. And the supreme privilege of that. If you were filling in the blanks, the, the main point of the sermon is simply the privilege of knowing the grace of Jesus. The privilege of knowing the grace of Jesus. Now, well, think with me in the verses that we just read, one long sentence, Peter is giving this argument, and he starts with all of it for the purpose of saying, blessed be, worship unto God. Why? Because when we were dead, He caused us to be born again. That it's reactionary, it's passive. We didn't cause ourselves, but He saved us. He caused us to be born again. And we're born to a living hope. We're born to an inheritance. We're born to a salvation that is one day coming. And therefore, we can rejoice, though now for a little while, you are grieved by various trials. Remember, Peter is writing to a church in persecution. But he's telling them reasons for rejoicing. And he's saying that even amidst persecution, you can rejoice. And he's ending that argument with this truth, that even in your suffering, you can rejoice because of the privilege that you have as Christians to know the grace of Jesus. And he does that by explaining it three ways. Truth number one, the first is this, is that all Scripture points to the grace of Jesus. How how is Peter giving this argument? He says this in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, he's referring to the Old Testament prophets, so all of the Old Testament writings, all of the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about this grace, meaning that they were pointing to something. They were pointing to Jesus. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They're inquiring that what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Meaning they recognized that the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to write about a Messiah. They recognized that what they were writing was about a future Messiah. They were trying to figure out the indicated time and the predicted sufferings of Christ and His subsequent glories. Verse 12. It was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets of old, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that now have been announced to you. Here's here's the point that Peter is saying. Is that you as Christians, elect exiles, going back to verse 1, that suffering sojourns, that we as Christians recognize in our suffering, Peter is giving the argument, 
You are suffering because of you are Christians. You're facing persecution because you are Christians. But I need you to know the privilege that you have to call yourself a Christian because you know the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus that all of history before us was talking about. That all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Now, when we read the New Testament, this is a common conversation I have with someone who's new to Christianity or is a new believer in Christ. They read the New Testament and they understand it and they make sense, but then I often get questions like this. Well, how does the Old Testament, how, how does the Old Testament fit with the New Testament? It, it seems contradictory at times. It doesn't make sense. But if you understand this truth that all the Old Testament in and of itself is cannot be explained apart from Christ, because now that we have Christ, we understand that all of the Old Testament is pointing us to Christ. Can I give us some examples so that we might understand what I mean? When we begin to think about Genesis chapter 1, that in the beginning God created. John, the writer of John, playing off that truth, trying to make the connection, says, begins John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word. He's trying to make the connection that Christ was in the beginning. And then when, when Christ and everything was made through him, Colossians tells us that through, even in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, everything was made through Christ and for Christ. We understand in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, we see a picture. We talked about this. In Genesis 3.15, we see a picture of Christ even explained there by God the Father. When we come to even the picture of what we talked about with the kids a minute ago with Noah, the fact that God even in His judgment brought a way for a future covenant in Noah is a picture to Christ and how Christ is the one in which we are able to escape judgment. When we come to the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 15 and following, we see a picture of how God is going to redeem one person in order to have a covenant relationship. And that covenant is a picture to Christ and it's a picture to covenant relationship with the church. When we think about the people in Egypt in slavery, at the end, Genesis ends that way and we come into Exodus, we see Moses who is in the wilderness and he comes back to redeem uh, the people of God. He comes back and he redeems the people of God and he brings them out of slavery. It's a beautiful picture and a type to Christ who also made the same wilderness journey even as a kid who comes to his people and brings them out of slavery. We think about Joshua, the one who followed up Moses. Jesus in the Greek is actually Joshua. He's named Joshua. It's through Latin into English that it's translated into Jesus, but it's originally Joshua. And it's a picture that Joshua, how he carried God's people into the promised land for them to dwell with God forever, is a picture that through the person of Jesus, he carries us into a promised land with him forever. Begin to think about even more, just moving on and on. We think about King David. King David is a picture of the perfect king, and Jesus is our perfect king. We begin to think about Ezra, a great prophet and a great priest, we see that Jesus is that great prophet and priest. When we think about Nehemiah, the one who after exile, he brings the people of God back and they begin to restore the wall, we see Christ as our great restorer. When we think about Ruth and the kinsman and redeemer, we see Christ as our great redeemer. On and on, you think about Hosea. Hosea married uh, a, a woman who was unfaithful to him and, and God told him, you continue to love her and show her grace no matter how much she cheats on you, no matter what the affairs, on and on and on because my people constantly sin and affair against me but yet I will always be faithful to them. All throughout the Old Testament is pointing us to 
Jesus. Let me give some specific examples, and we won't go fast here. Where are some specific places in the Old Testament that point to Jesus? We understand that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. It's a prophecy telling us that the Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 prophesies about the virgin birth. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. Zechariah chapter 11 prophesies the fact that Jesus was going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and that 30 pieces of silver was going to be given to a potter to buy a field. Zechariah 11, verse 13. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. Matthew chapter 26 and 27 tells us this, that how it was fulfilled. But throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. This is hundreds of years before it took place in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. The fact that Jesus was mocked during his death, Psalms 22 verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Silent when accused, Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The fact that the Messiah would be crucified with pierced hands and feet, Psalms 22, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. The fact that he was pierced in death, Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that threw us peace and brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We go on and on, but I'm going to stop there. You get the picture that Peter's making it clear. And he's trying to encourage believers that all of the Old Testament, all of history prior to this audience, and this includes us because he's talking to people who are Christians and covenant relationship with Christ. He's saying all of history and all of scriptures, Old and New Testament, is pointing to the privilege that you have to know Jesus. See, Moses was a great prophet. Moses, scripture says that he even would go into the tabernacle and would speak to God as if a friend speaking to a friend. Now, I like to think that that's pretty cool. I like to think that I could walk into this room and God and I would have an audible conversation. I'd like to think that would be real great. Many of us have gone, God, I wish you would just audibly explain and speak to me. But you've got to understand something. Peter is saying, Moses didn't have it as good as we got it. Because now we have all the scriptures of God speaking to us fulfilled. And Romans 8 says, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Jesus said, I must go to the Father so that I may send the helper, the Spirit, to live in you and to live through you. Peter's making it clear. You have a privilege of knowing Christ in intimate relationship, knowing God in relationship, that those prior to Christ could only know about and speak to, but couldn't actually experience. He's saying no matter your persecution, you have the privilege of knowing that all of Scripture, all of history, is pointing to this moment that you get to experience as Christians of knowing Jesus. Truth number two, not only first do we see all of Scripture and all of history pointing to Jesus and pointing to this privilege But second, we see angels long to see the grace of Jesus. It ends, verse 12 ends with this phrase, things into which angels long to look. Interesting. Think about that for a second. 
things to which angels long to look. The, to look it literally is translated or literally means to bend over and look with curiosity. To bend over and look with curiosity. Now, we know angels. Angels are uh, those that are in God's heavenlies. Isaiah 6 gives us a picture of this, that the angels are there crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels are in the presence of God, a place you and I long to be. The angels are there. The angels haven't fallen. These angels that are in God's presence have never sinned. And because they've never sinned, they've never experienced the grace of Jesus that we've experienced. And this is the point, that in order to know God's grace, we must first be under His judgment and wrath. I understand His grace and love for me when I first also understand my sin and what that means. And angels who have never fallen have never understood that guilt, have never understood that shame. Therefore, they can't experience grace like you and I can. And that's why Peter is saying, you're experiencing this grace and angels who are in the holies of holies of a holy God look down and with curiosity looking into what's going on in amazement to believe that you are experiencing a part of God's grace and mercy that even they, in God's presence, have never known. Do you get that? That in Christ, you and I have something that angels long to look in and see. How special is that? When we begin to think about the magnitude of the beauty of knowing Jesus and the specialty of that, it then recognizing that angels and all of history is pointing to what you and I have in knowing Jesus, the privilege of knowing Jesus, when we put that into perspective, all of a sudden, that suffering isn't so big deal in our lives anymore. That suffering doesn't begin to thwart the goodness of Christ in our lives. Does that make sense? See what Peter's doing? He's about to set up those who are in suffering, he's about to try to encourage them, and he starts by encouraging them, you have the greatest gift in all the world, and that's to know Jesus, even if knowing Jesus is what puts you into suffering. See what he's saying? How good is that? He's saying not only does all of history, but even the angels long to look. My family, um, Jenna and the three kids, they went to Memphis a week ago, and they're going to be there for another three weeks. And already, I'm not going to see them for almost a month, and already after a week, I, I missed them. Like, I, I missed them. I missed them after a day. But even more and more, I, I, I long to see them. I, I long to hug them. I, I long to kiss them. I long to wrestle with my boys, right? I, I just long to do these things. I, I long for them to annoy me again. Like, I long, I long for all those things, right? I, longing. Think of some examples. What are some things that come to mind when you can think of this desire of longing to see someone? or longing to see something. Many of us have family members that we don't get to see all that often or things, and we have this excitement and curiosity. Maybe um, you're like my kids who are going to experience something for the first time, and they just are so excited. They're longing to experience. They're longing to see it. Imagine the angels, much greater and mightier than I, holy angels in God's presence. They long to see the grace and the relationship with their God that they love the way you and I do. They long to see that. How privileged are you and I that we can know the grace of Jesus. Truth number three, I want us to get this. Christians get to know the grace of Jesus. Simple conclusion. 
Christians get to know the grace of Jesus. Now, I'm intentional here to write Christians. And what I mean by Christians is not cultural. If you call yourself a Christian because you uh, just grew up in a Christian home or because you come to church, doesn't mean that you're being defined of what I mean by Christian here. Let me give an example of what I mean by this. Yesterday, uh, I was on the subway coming back from Manhattan and I was listening to a conversation because there wasn't much else to do of these two gentlemen that I met and they were just... They were just having a conversation. They were talking sports. And it came up that one of them went to school with a famous ESPN sportscaster. And, um, and so one of them, went to, they were just talking about him. And he was like, yeah, you know, like I went to school with him. He's just like he was in high school as he is on TV. And they're having this conversation. But then there's like, I, you know, like I, I begin to think, though, that, hey, does, does, does this famous person know you? Right? You went to high school with him, and y'all may know one another, but you, if you've never talked to him in 20, 30 years since high school, I, I, I wanted to ask the question, at least in my mind, and I was really thinking on this sermon as I was listening to it, is you know of him. And, and you, as the guy said, I had lunch with him in, I think, like 10th grade or something. Like, uh, you, okay, you had some lunch with the guy then, but if you haven't talked to him in 20, 30, 40 years, do you really know him? See, there's a difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing them. And what we're talking about tonight is not knowing about Jesus. A lot of us know about Jesus. But if that's the extent of what Christianity means to you, I want to lovingly tell you you're missing the essence of Christianity. Christianity is not just knowing about all of theology. It's not just knowing about the doctrines. It's not just knowing about Jesus. Yes, he's God. He loves me. All those things are true, and I'm not minimizing those things. But there's a vast difference in me knowing about someone and me knowing them. Better yet, there's a vast difference between me knowing about someone and them knowing me. See, it's one thing for you to know about someone famous. It's another thing for that famous person to know you. I know Charles. He's going to be famous one day. And one day, many people are going to go like, I know of Charles. Like, he's this wonderful singer. He's got this great band. He's traveling the world. I met him once. I, I'm from the same high school as him. But I'll be able to say, I know Charles, right? I know him. He knows me. Big difference. I give that as a funny example, but you get the point. Question is, not do you know about Jesus, but as Christians, what Peter is saying, that because of the grace of Jesus in our life, that he has born us, made us alive, born again in him, that we have gone from his holy, just, righteous judgment into his love, grace, and mercy through the person of Jesus, that we aren't just stepping into something that we have theology, although that's a part of it. We're not just stepping in to go, I know about Jesus. We're stepping in and going, we know Jesus, and he knows me. See what Peter is saying? See how this is the greatest encouragement as he dives into a letter of people who are in persecution and suffering for their faith in Christ? He's saying those sufferings are nothing because you have the greatest thing in all of history. All of history longs and has been talking about what you have. Angels long to look in and see what you have, but you actually have it. Look with me, read with me in uh, verse 11. The Old Testament prophets were inquiring about the person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. But it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that now have been announced to you 
through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here's what he's saying. Old Testament prophets, all of history pointing to this moment. Angels looking down to see it, but you have actually heard it in the preaching of the good news of the gospel by preachers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That you now have it. Now those would go on to be the writings specifically of the New Testament. And so we, as preachers today and as people of the gospel today, as we communicate, we communicate God's word. But the point is saying that all of history has culminated in Christ and now you have the most privileged part of history to know Christ in relationship. I want to end with this. I want to go back to verse um, 9. We ended with last week. Let me read verse 9 to us. Obtaining the outcome of your faith is salvation of your souls. He's given this argument that we have obtained the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And we said last week, and I bring it to our attention this week, that obtaining the outcome of your faith, obtaining is in the present tense. It's not future. He is not talking about a future salvation. Now, we do recognize there is a future salvation where God's going to make all things new. But the salvation he's talking about right now is a present salvation. And the present salvation is that we have it presently experienced the grace of Jesus and we presently get to have a relationship with Him today. We don't claim to be Christians. We don't call ourselves Christians because one day we'll have a relationship with Jesus. We claim to be Christians and followers of Jesus because we currently have a relationship with Jesus. That I know Christ relationally and He knows me. John chapter 17 says the eternal life is that you know the Father in whom he has sent his son, Jesus Christ. So the question I have for you today is do you know Jesus? And better yet, does Jesus know you? This is the greatest gift in all the world. This is the essence of Christianity, is that I say, I, I know Jesus and Jesus knows me. Then when I face sufferings, when I face the valley moments, when I face the difficult moments, no matter how difficult it gets, I'm able to bless God as verse 3 starts. The whole sentence of this starts, blessed be the God and Father. Why? Because Jesus is enough. If we never experienced another ounce of blessing on this side of eternity, would Jesus be enough? And what Peter is saying is that Jesus is enough. And no matter the suffering, no matter the difficult times, no matter the sickness, because they're all prevalent in our lives and they're there, it does not mean that Jesus doesn't love us, but in fact, that the fact that he stepped into our suffering proves that he loves us. And so we don't question his love for us, but we step in and recognize that if I have another, not another single ounce of goodness on this side of eternity, if the worst case of every situation were to happen, this passage is saying, but Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Knowing him is enough. It's worth it. Salvation is is not just what he saves us from his judgment but what he saves us to relationship with him salvation is to know Jesus and for Jesus to know you do you know Jesus if you don't know Jesus scripture invites you to recognize that you just know about him but you don't know him but you can know him that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved that if you repent of your sin and turn to Him, salvation is yours today. Would you turn to Him in salvation? Would you give your life to Him? Would you come and, and accept the invitation that He is offering to you to walk into an intimate relationship with Him? 
And then for the believers in the room, I, I close with this challenge. Would you never lose the awe and wonder of knowing Jesus? I do at times. I get called up in the, the things that are right in front of me and I forget that God has created me to know Him. God has created me to glorify Him. And as John Piper has famously said, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's a relationship. Satisfied in Him that He is glorified. So would you never lose the awe and wonder of the privilege of what it means to know Jesus? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You that You are not a God who is just above, sovereign over everything, which you are that, but you're not just that. But you're also a God who is Emmanuel, God with us, the God who is drawn near to us, the God who steps into our mess, he steps into our brokenness and he makes masterpieces out of it. That he steps in, he redeems, he restores. That he steps into his creation that has rebelled against him, that is under the rightful, just wrath and judgment of God. But in your love for us, you do not desire to leave us there. So you stepped into that and you took on wrath for us so that you could know us and save us and redeem us. Oh God, let us never lose sight of that. And let us, our response, be what Peter argues here in verse 3. Bless God the Father. Bless Him in song. Bless Him with your life. Give your life to Him. He's worth it. Christians, you have the privilege of knowing the grace of Jesus. Would you live every single day in honor and worship to Him in response to that? The non-Christians in the room is that you have heard the gospel preached today, just like described in this passage. How will you respond to that message? You can't be neutral with Christ. You either reject Christ and He rejects you. Or you recognize that He's died for you. He's offered His life for you. He's inviting you in. And you accept Christ. You surrender to Him as Lord and Savior. You confess Him. You give it all to Him and recognize that, that He is King and Master of your life. Rightfully so. And He is a good Master. He is not an overbearing Master. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. offer salvation to you. Surrender your life to Him today. Church family, we have the privilege of responding as the point of the text to respond and worship. So would you stand with me now? And would you just respond in gratitude and worship to Him for the grace that He has bestowed upon your life?